Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did the Almighty come down? Why did he take to himself human flesh? Why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Well, that's really one of the questions that will be answered today as we look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our study, the second study in our little series um, from the Culloden uh, Christian Assembly, Home Bible Studies. Um, we're looking at study number two, Greater Than the Angels. This is podcast number three and in a sense, study number three. We've divided the Greater Than the Angels section into two and we're looking at chapter two from verse number five to verse number 18 today. Thank you for listening. I'm Andrew, the host of this podcast and trust you'll be blessed as we continue to think of God's word together. Hebrews chapter 2, um, we'll read for connection the whole of this chapter together just at the beginning of our podcast, asking first for God's help. Father, as we come to thee, that we pray that we might uh, appreciate something more of the Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son, in his name. Amen. So reading Hebrews chapter 2 from verse number 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now there's a, a pause here, and we're resuming uh, the argument from the end of chapter 1. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. If chapter 1 
from verse 4 to 13, has affirmed the superiority of the Son attested by the seven Old Testament scriptures. That is, his superiority of rank and character and nature. He, we might even say he is superior because he is God. But of course, uh, you will remember that our Lord is also truly human. And and for those who are Hebrews um, at this time, the, some of them would have been able to remember back to the earthly days of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and they might ask the question, but he is truly human. And is his superiority to angels only with respect to his nature and his rank? What about his purpose? What about his humanity? And, uh, and in chapter 2, really what the, the writer is dealing with, as you'll see from verse number 5, he, he's going to deal with this idea that that the Lord Jesus has a superior role in the world to come. That he has a superior role as the captain of our salvation. At the end of chapter 1, the last verse, we read that he that the angels were were those who who aided those who minister to those who will inherit salvation and now we find out in chapter 2 that there's one who is the very captain or the author or the the file leader or the originator all these words are are trying to hit at the the greek word that's behind it um of our salvation and so so here we have this idea that the the one who is is um is the Son of God in chapter 1 and is seen as distinct from everyone else and so very high, he is the one who has stooped so very low. He is the one who has come very near to us. Not only is he very high, he has become and he has come very nigh, to use the old English expression. He is infinitely high but has become intimately nigh. Now, just in saying all that, um, the focus I think we will learn in this chapter is is on what why the Lord Jesus did that, why he took to himself true humanity. We'll learn the purposes of the incarnation, the plan of God as implemented by Christ. And now we'll be introduced to the present work of Christ for his people as the great high priest. And of course that's where the writer of the Hebrews is going to go. He's really illustrate or he's really telling um the readers this because he's going to move them into a deeper understanding of what the high priesthood of, of of the lord jesus is as he goes through the rest of this book it's important we get a hang of that too now there's a complex argument that we're going to try to unpack from verse number 5 to 18 but before we do that just to say one or two things about one to four um, as I said before, this is a little bracketed passage. It's a parenthesis. Uh, it's been looked upon as a warning passage. Uh, one of five, perhaps, in the Hebrews letter. Where, where the, the author stops just for a few seconds and he turns his attention to uh, the, his audience. And he applies the truth of what he has said. In chapter 1, he's emphasised how absolutely wonderful the Son is. The one who is um, the same uh, and, and his years shall not fail. The one who is the son who has come to represent and to uh, speak for uh, God. He is the messenger and the message. All these things come out of chapter 1. Then of course he comes to the start of chapter 2. And he says therefore we must give them more earnest heed. Lest we drift away from them. Now what is he speaking about drifting away from? Well 
I suggest that he's speaking about drifting away from the truth of the deity of Christ, of the sonship of Christ, of what he really is, because that's what the subject is of chapter 1. Now, to do that, it would prove that they were not truly believers, some of these people. Um, and to be honest, that fits with the context of the whole of the epistle. The main bulk of who he's speaking to, he has no doubt, he has persuaded better things of them, things that accompany salvation, chapter 6 tells us, but he is worried about their 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 how stagnant they have become and the danger that there is there for them to go back to Judaism and in doing so leave aside the truth of Christianity entirely. No longer view Christ as the Son of God but as an imposter and to do that would only be going back to perdition. Um, now of course no one who is truly a believer, who, who truly has trusted Christ would do that in that fullest sense of the word. Uh, but however, that's the subject for another day. We'll not say anything more on the first four verses. From verse number five, he's looking at this subject uh, of the superiority of the Lord Jesus in relation to his destiny and purpose. Now notice, of course, the twin truths that, that in a sense, are the great pillars at the front of the temple of the epistle of the Hebrews. His deity in chapter one and his humanity in chapter to when we come to his humanity we're going to see an accompany link to him in chapter one in the main although there's a few exceptions because there's an it's an it's an intricately woven argument but in the main in chapter one we see the lord as distinct from everyone else as not having peers as it were as not having those who are close to him he is coming out from god in that remarkable way um he is coming out as the message from god for uh, his people but however in chapter 2 we see him going back to God and as he goes back to God obviously via the cross and via uh, the incarnation his taking to himself humanity uh, he is coming back to God with a company attached to him he is the file leader the captain of their salvation and he is drawing these people to God and he is leading them back home and into uh, this this wonderful relationship with God and of course, this is really brought out in chapter 3 and verse 1. This 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 kind of uh, movement out from God and then back to God. You'll see there in chapter 3, verse 1, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He's the apostle, that means the sent one. So he's coming from God. And high priest, the high priest was the one who went back into God's presence, representing uh, a people. And of course, we have the... The, high, the apostle mainly in chapter 1, the high priest mainly in chapter 2. And so I think that helps us to understand the, the big sort of sweep of the passage. Now let's look at the, the chapter itself in more detail. What I want to do for the sake of, of purpose, um, for our purpose today, is, is really to look at Christ from various standpoints. From verse number 5 um, through to verse number 13 sorry verse number yeah first number five to verse number uh nine um yeah first five to nine we want to see christ as the exalter of humanity the one who brings humanity to its its exalted position in the world to come christ now of course this isn't all that we have in that passage but it's important that we see that point then we have from verse number 10 to verse number 13, 
Christ the pioneer of the Son's salvation. Then we have from verse 14 uh, down through uh, to verse uh, verse 15 as well. We have uh, Christ the share of man's nature. Now, of course uh, Christ was sinless in, in sharing man's nature. But the reality of true humanity was, was true of him. Verse 14 and, and 15. And then of course we have Christ the helper of Abraham's seed. That's verse number 16. And then finally Christ the high priest of his people. Verse 17 and 18. So what we're going to see is different snapshots of the Lord. And the work that he's doing uh, unfolded and unpacked for us in these verses before us so let's get cracking on the first one of these christ the exalter of humanity for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels now this is speaking about god and, and he's going back to this whole subject of salvation he's kind of touched upon it in the first four verses but it really comes as well from the end of chapter one verse 14 that there's those who are going to inherit salvation and of course salvation in this sense is in a future sense Salvation can have a, a past tense. There was a time when we were pulled out of the, 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 the mire of our sin, as it were. We were sinking, we were perishing, and Christ saved us. That's a past tense. We are being saved. That's a present tense. We're, we're going home to glory, and we'll see a bit of that in this chapter. And there's a future tense as well, where we will be finally and fully and forever with Christ uh, saved and entering into the fullness of that salvation. Of course, the Hebrews had a very earthly focus when they thought of the coming kingdom and the coming uh, time of, of blessing, as it were. Um, and, and, and the writer of the Hebrews is not dissuading them of that here uh, because there is a real sense in which there is an earthly time of blessing which will be associated with our uh, salvation in the future. And so you'll see that as we go down these verses. What he's going to say at this point is that actually the angels... You notice the contrast between the Son and the angels so far. He's not going to contrast between human beings and angels because Christ has taken to himself true humanity. And, and so what he's going to do is further distance Christ from the angels and show him to be superior to them. Uh, so let's look at this. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Speaking about the coming messianic age, the coming kingdom age, the coming time of blessing and salvation. He says that was never subjected to angels. Angels are not the ones in authority in that age. And then he takes us to Psalm number 8. He says, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Now, if you look back at Psalm number 8, you'll find out that this really is, is a psalm which is all about um, the position of man in God's program, in God's plan. And of course, Adam was given this exalted position of being above uh, the other created order in relation to this world. And and of course, that's exactly what it's going to pick up on here. He, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour. You set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his Feet. Now, there are different ways we can take make this a little lower than the angels. I take it that the Hebrew writer is, is really telling us that, that man was laid, made for a little time lower than the angels. Now, uh, I realise the Old Testament passage doesn't really emphasise that as much, but uh, that's an allowable way to look at this, and it fits better with verse number 9, as we'll see in a minute. 
So mankind has been made for a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honour, set over the work of God's hands, put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. So the world to come has not in that sense been put under the domain of angels, but it's been put under the domain of uh, man. But we don't see things um, under him as yet. Mankind sadly has failed in his role as being the um, the one who is in control in this world, as it were. He has failed because of uh, of sin. So we have something of the fall brought in at that point to take it. Uh, verse number nine. Uh, but we see Jesus, and so he, the writer is now turning our focus to. The one who is exalted, the one who is in control, the one who is on high, the one who is at God's right hand. And he uses this human name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He focuses on this word Jesus. Now, I know it's very common for Christians to always refer to Christ as, as Jesus. However, when the scriptures do it, they do it very selectively. And um, it's nice to see that here because what the focus is on the, the one who is the historic Jesus of Nazareth is now seen as exalted at God's right hand, the one who has taken humanity right back to the throne of God. We see Jesus, he was made a little lower, or for a little time lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, now crowned with glory and honour, or because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So this really, I think, brings us to the heart of what he's trying to get at here. And it's this thought that the one in whom humanity will be brought to its natural, exalted place of of ruling and reigning in, in the age to come, in the time of blessing and salvation, the messianic age, it's in Christ that this will be done. This is brought out in, in Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32 uh, really brings us to the forefront. Uh, there we read that a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. Speaking of the coming messianic age. Uh, and a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, a covert from the tempest, rivers of water and uh, a dry place and a shadow of a great rock and a wearing, weary land. So mankind is going to be exalted in the exaltation of Christ to the place in this world that he deserves. So the first thing we notice about Christ is that He's the one who is the exalter of humanity. Secondly, we have Christ as the pioneer of the Son's salvation. Look at verse number 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. Now, various translations try to put this in different ways. All of one family, some will say. All of one father, others will say. And you'll see why in a minute. But really, the, I think the, the collective unity is what's being emphasized here. They're all of one. For which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So let's think about this idea of Christ as a pioneer of the Son's salvation. It is God the Father that is emphasized first in verse number 10, for it was fitting for him. It was, it was uh, fitting for him. Uh, that's a very interesting word in its own right. Um, 
what we have there is the thought um, it was entirely appropriate that God, um, as another translation has it, in bringing many sons to glory, uh, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I'm reading there from the uh, Homans Christian Standard Bible, or part of it anyway. Um, I, I think it's important we can see this. What he's going to say here is that that the pathway of suffering that Christ went through in coming into this world was in the plan of God. It was in the purpose of the one for whom are all things. Everything is going to head up in God. Uh, and through whom are all things, he is the one who is the agent behind uh, the moving forward of his program. Um, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, the pioneer, you might use the word, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, we were speaking about this in the Bible study uh, and we were looking at how Christ could be made perfect. Of course, he can't be made perfect as to himself. He is always and has always been perfect. There's no imperfection in him. But of course, this thought of per perfection can have the idea of completeness. And, and the thought of being perfected for a rule. And the rule that is in the, the passage here is the one as a pioneer of our salvation. The salvation of the sons. We'll think about that in a minute. So, if the Lord Jesus had stayed in heaven, um, as it were, distinct from us, um, he would have been distinct from us forever. And we would have never entered into the good of the salvation. So if he was to be our saviour, if he was to be the pioneer of our salvation, it involved him entering into sufferings. Not just the sufferings that it speaks to, uh, speaks about at the end of verse number 9, the suffering of death. That's one aspect of it. Uh, of course, without the suffering of death, um, we could never be brought into God's presence because we need the salvation that he gives through his suffering. Um, without his tasting death, that's it, experientially entering into the what death really meant for him in that real physical sense. Without that, he could not, um, in that sense, bring us to glory. But there's another sense we're going to see. And there's that sense in which... All of his sufferings fit him to be the one who is leading us now to glory. Um, he is the faithful and merciful high priest, we're going to say. And, and because he has entered into it, he can put his arm around us. Uh, and so if you think um, you know what betrayal feels like, if you lose a friend who betrays you in some way or, or lets you down, just remember the Lord Jesus knew what it was to, to face true betrayal with Judas if you think you've entered into the the full extremities of, of physical tiredness just remember that Christ was asleep on that boat remember that he knows what hunger is remember that he was the one who uh, sweat as it were great clots of blood falling down to the ground what I mean is this that there's a whole realm of human experience and trial and suffering that Christ has entered into for us in order that we might be brought to that ultimate glory uh, by way of a pathway of, of difficulty and suffering because he has gone the way before he is a pioneer he has opened up the way into this wonderful land of salvation that we have 
uh, in front of us. So really that, I think, is what's being brought out in this little section. Um, in making, he, God saw it as, as a fitting way to bring sons home to glory. And it says, for both he who sanctifies, that's Christ, he's the one who sets us apart through his death. And those who are being sanctified, that's us. Uh, we are being set apart, as it were, going towards um, glory, uh, are all of one. We are, we are all in the one company, you might say all in the one family. We're all united together. And so here we have the distinction from chapter 1, where he is seen as distinct, but now he is seen as with us and all of one with us. For which reason it tells us that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying I will declare your name to my brethren. Now he gives three quotations from the Old Testament. Two from Isaiah. and One Isaiah chapter 8. And one from uh, Psalm 22. Firstly the Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. Now this is beautifully brought out in uh, John chapter uh, 21. Uh, or 20, I should say, when he, he speaks to those uh, having been raised from the dead and he says, go tell my brethren, I ascend to my father and your father to my God and your God. What was happening? Well, look at Psalm 22. The sufferings of the cross are past. That's the first half of Psalm 22. And then we, we come to the anticipation of the glories that follow. Because he says, I will declare my name, thy name unto my brethren. So we have uh, Christ and he is, he has brethren now. He is speaking to them. He is, he is revealing God's name to them. More than that, he, he calls them brethren, of course. He, he gives them this label there. They're close to him. They're part of his family. This is a particular company. It's a privileged and praising company. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And now he is the leader of the praise among them as he leads them to glory. Then we have, of course, a priestly company. I will, um, the idea really then is um, brought out, um, I will declare your name. Uh, I think there might be a link there with, with Numbers chapter 6, but we'll leave that for your, your thought. Um, the prophetic and priestly roles, I think, are brought in in this little section. Of course, it's a praying company and trusting company. I will put my trust in him. And of course, eventually it will be a presented company. Here am I and the children whom God has given me. And and I think what's happening is that all the actions of the Lord are connecting the family to God in some way in this passage. And of course, it's the Lord's humanity that's in view here. He is revealing God's name. He's praising God in the midst of his his people. He is trusting God. That again emphasizes his true humanity. He's the one leading them home as it were. Uh, he is presenting to God and eventually we see uh, God's purpose and plan behind it all whom God has given me. He says at the end, uh, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So he's crediting God with the great program of salvation. That fits us back of course to the start of verse number uh, 10. So, so here we have in this section, Christ the pioneer of his son's uh, salvation. Then we have, uh, thirdly, um, Christ the sharer of man's nature. Uh, you see how this theme is developing. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken in flesh and blood. The children, of course, links us back to the verse before, verse number 13. And the children whom God has given me. These children have partaken of flesh and blood. That's their normal. We share in flesh and blood. That we are human. Um, 
Inasmuch then as they have shared in it, he likewise shared in the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so here we have Christ as the sharer of man's uh, nature. Of course, Christ voluntarily took part, uh, shared in the same. Uh, and the purpose is given that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Now this is interesting. If you can defeat an enemy at his strongest point, the enemy is going to be defeated easily in every other way. And the death blow will be uh, felt for an enemy if he is defeated in his strongest point. So, so you think even of the Second World War for the moment. You think of how uh, when... Really, the tide turned when when uh, the Russian army uh, and that bitter winter happened, and and at at the very height of the Nazi assault uh, on on um, Stalingrad, uh, there was that that break, and eventually everything was downhill for the Nazis thereafter. I think it would be fair uh, to say so. They were defeated at their strongest point, and therefore you knew the writing was on the wall. Well, it was true um, very clearly uh, at the cross where the Lord Jesus, through entering into the very stronghold of death itself, defeating Satan in his strongest point. He had the power of death that he used, uh, as it were, as a tool to keep people in lifetime servitude and bondage. He, he kept the, 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 ch the children, the those who were to be believers he kept them in, in, in subject subject to this bondage but now he breaks the power of that uh, devil he renders him powerless that's the thought behind this idea of destroying him he renders him inoperative or powerless in this realm and so how wonderful that is Goliath is slain with his own sword you remember going down into the valley of Elah David not only uh, puts a uh, uh, a slingshot between the giant's eyes he then takes out his own sword and slays him with it and really that's the key here um, the devil has been slain by his own sword by the, the power of death and now uh, Christians because they have entered into the good of that because they have trusted the saviour and they know that he has risen up from among the dead we know that the devil even at his strongest point the worst that he can do even if he, he gets he enrages people to take away our physical life. We know that he is lost because our Saviour has conquered in that very realm. So Satan is defeated in his strongest point. The writing is on the wall. Okay, so uh, then we have Christ the helper of Abraham's seed. This is verse number 16. <clears throat> For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Notice this idea of the contrast between angels now and the seed of Abraham. Um, now the contrast in chapter 2 between angels is between humanity and angels and here it's between angels and the seed of Abraham. Now you notice not the seed of Adam. I think it's important to mention here that, that what we're speaking about is Christ's um, work for those who will believe in this context. Now I am absolutely clear in the fact that Christ died for all. That I think there are seven passages in the New Testament that uh, create a cumulative case uh, 
to the, the fact that Christ has not just died for a, a specific company necessarily, but he has died for all. In fact, that very expression is used um, in more than one occasion. So, um, I'm not trying to dispute that, but here the focus is on the seed of Abraham. Why the seed of Abraham? Well, Abraham was the was the man of faith. Uh, he was the, the father of the, all those who believe. It tells us that in um, Romans chapter 4. Uh, and so, what we're having here is a contrast between angels. Angels who... They never experience redemption, salvation. They, they, they aren't brought into the, the blessing of salvation. And yet here, here is, is Christ coming from heaven. Here is the Son of God stooping down into humanity. And he is giving aid to you. He is laying hold on. And not angels, but the seed of Abraham. He is taking to himself those who trust in him. And he is going to bring them back to glory so he's the helper of Abraham's seed in a very beautiful way now coming to the end of the passage and we're kind of out of time so then we have verse 17 and 18 Christ the high priest of his people he's going to bring out some more beautiful truths about Christ in this passage therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren in all things um, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And then he mentions two other things, things that are essential for him in his role as high priest. Firstly, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, and then for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Do you remember, as someone has pointed out, that that high priest that we find in the start of the book of, of Samuel. Eli, he was neither merciful to Hannah or faithful in his role, sadly. Um, but this high priest is very different. So when we come into his presence, we come into God's presence, we know there's one representing us there who is merciful. He knows our weakness. He knows our failure. He knows our sin. He knows our shortcomings. Um he has been here. He has walked this path. He is the pioneer. He, he, he is the one who has who's seen what it's like actually on site. Um, yet we have him. And he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. He deals with the, the problem um, of sin and sins. Uh, and, and then he goes into God's presence for us. And, and he is able to... To aid us and to sympathize with us and come alongside because he suffered being tempted. Not only did he suffer um, in relation to um, the, the, the cross, uh, the suffering of death that it speaks on earlier in the passage. But he also suffered along the way. And he was tested in all points we're going to see. And he experienced the full extremities of what it meant to be human in a pure sense, in a sinless sense. And therefore, he is able to draw alongside us and bring us home and draw us to God and be with us the whole journey through. And he's able to save, it will tell us later on, to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, seeing he always lives to make intercession for them and that's where he's getting to isn't it marvelous just to stop and, and unpick and unpack how many 
things this passage tells us uh, about uh, the, the necessity of the incarnation of Christ, him becoming truly human. If you think back on chapter 1, which I hope you have done, uh, when, if you think back in chapter 1, it's very clear that he's truly and fully divine. He is verily God, and yet we thank God that, that we can also say that he has become truly human, lower than angels, to die in our place. How hast thou, the hymn writer said, how hast thou long promised seed of the woman trod on the serpent and bruised his head. And so, as we just summarize these first two chapters, just remember chapter one, it's all about the, well not all, but vastly about the deity of Christ, about the one who is truly the son of God. Chapter two is the one who is truly drawn near to us as the son of man. May the Lord bless his word.